I remember being in India, I think it was about February 2000, I remember sitting in a taxi with one of our main shareholders and he had just gotten off the phone from someone at Merrill Lynch and they had offered to value our business. This is a business literally six months old. I think it was, I think it was $500 million valuation. And I remember him saying, uh, we think we can get to a billion dollars very soon. So we're not interested in that. So that was one moment I remember that was just pre-dot-com crash where supposedly someone was willing to value us at $500 million where we weren't even generating a sense of revenue yet. Andy Higgins is the founder of Bid or Buy. In this episode, we look back to the company's first near-death experience back in 2000 when the dot-com bubble burst. Andy's story is a tech roller coaster spanning two decades, 40 investors, a billion-dollar pseudo-valuation, fast hiring, and a slow but steady internet bubble bursting. The tech decline that Andy found himself in the middle of came with retrenchments, personal turmoil, a study break, and a slow march towards profitability thanks to Google gaining traction, and South Africa emerging from the internet dark ages when people were paying per minute to be online. My name is Nick Harrodambus and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer, so remember, it's not over until it's over. Welcome back to It's Not Over. Today I'm sitting with somebody who I'm really excited to talk to, somebody I've known in the tech space for a long time and admired for a long time, somebody who has infiltrated your brains with the best advert in South African advertising ever. And my partner and I were discussing it last night when I told her that I was interviewing Andy Higgins. And Andy, all I can say is like. Welcome and thank you for that ad. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> yeah, so the, the this is not relevant to the, the conversation we're going to have, but I have to ask who on earth came up with the, the that ad? Because it genuinely is unbelievable and everybody I've ever met knows the precise pause for bit or buy, bit or buy, bit or buy. So how? Who came up with that? It was actually, believe it or not, in the early days, the agency that we, it was Grey Advertising, one of the junior staff there came up with it with, with the radio ads we were doing and it, it stuck from there. And so it was wild. Yeah, it was we were quite fortunate. Wild. What an advert. Okay. So, I mean, I've kind of given it away. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and anything that's relevant to teeing us up to the, the pretty interesting near-death business experience we're going to talk about today. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So name's Andy and I pretty much have been involved in the e-commerce industry my entire career. At the young age of 23, I started but or buy back then. Actually, my career started in, in London. I'd say my online career in 1998 with a company called QXL that was supposed to be the answer to eBay in Europe. And I joined there at the early stages of that company. And, and they went on to list on the London Stock Exchange, become valued at more than British Airways at its peak, but then obviously stuff at the crash that's all the companies in that space did at the time. But I, after a year of living in London, I actually got homesick and wanted to come back to South Africa. And the one thing I knew how to do was to start an online auction site. So that that was the start of my career in e-commerce. And I haven't really looked back. Um, and as we're going to discover, I've kind of done full circle by the time we get to the end of this discussion. So it was starting off in, with the marketplace. Then I was involved with starting a company called Payfast with Jonathan Smith, which was online payments. I got exposed to Takealot when they started in South Africa. And then following that was uafrica.com, which focused on the logistics side of e-commerce. So pretty much all aspects of e-commerce, that's pretty much all I've known in sort of startup world. Very much not a corporate animal. 
And yeah, that's, that's where I find myself today still. Yeah, I mean, it, it is incredible from somebody who's a few years behind you on your journey, watching you just basically grandfather in all these incredible technologies to South Africa that you'd discovered. I mean, Payfast is an incredible payment platform that recently had an exit. Bit of buy has grown to these huge platforms. And now, as we'll hear at the end of this episode, you're going to tell us about what's coming next for Bit of Buy in the form of Bob, which I'm excited to talk about. But I think it's a really relevant and pertinent conversation leading into what we're going to talk about today. So before we get too much into the near-death experience of Bidobai, what I want to know, everybody kind of knows what Bidobai sort of is in the world, but I want to know from you, when, what year did you launch Bidobai and how was it making money at the time? Like what was the main driving force between the income and the, the vision of this business model? Okay, so we launched officially, I launched the, the first version of the site for my brother's flat in London in June 1999. Officially, the site launched in August 1999, and that was in South Africa. And I then, our investors at the time, they said we were thinking too small, and they said we need to think more globally. So I, within a month, found myself in Australia, and we had launched, actually, the second site we launched was in India, and the third was in Australia, and we went on to launch, or were about to launch in 12 countries around the world when we had our near-death experience. But the, the, the crazy thing is, when you look back, we didn't charge. We, it was Back then, it was like a land grab, right? Everyone, it was, was not about making money. It was about who could get the eyeballs in the, uh, onto the site. And investors told us, don't worry about charging for your service. That will come later. So we didn't earn a cent. In fact, sitting in our corner office, uh, we took up two floors on a high-rise building in the tech, tech area of North Sydney in Australia. We worked out that the guy selling bagels on the corner down on the street below was making more money than we were at the time. It's wild. I mean, there's a whole separate podcast episode on the longevity and viability of the VC model with this exact idea of screw making money. Let's just get as much land grab as we can and we'll figure out the money thing later. I'm kind of on the fence of that idea generally, but it's sort of how you've built your career, right? Is high growth startups getting land grab. That's how it was. I I, I don't think, I think it's the, the world has moved on and I, I don't think that's a viable, in my view, in my opinion, I don't think it's a, it's a viable strategy to follow. I think you need to start with something sustainable from day one in my opinion yeah yeah i mean look i firmly believe that now it's the unicorn unicorn versus zebra startup vibe right build mm. for profitability not for growth mm. so let's let's focus in now it's 99 and how quickly do you go from august launching to okay we need to get to 12 countries um is that within a year and then to add just a layer on that for context give us how long that was and then how how intense the growth growth was like how many people you brought on how many clients you brought on any numbers you can remember mm. to give us some context on the crash that's coming okay. i'll give you the numbers i remember it's probably not going to be 100 percent accurate cool. but i'm sure you'll get the gist of it so we started off it it was at that in, at that very beginning stage, we started off with a few hundred thousand dollars from seed investors, if you want to call it that, and that enabled us to launch the first, I'd say, the first three sites, which was South Africa, then India, then Australia. That was within a period of about six months. So that took us to sort of December, January, January two thousand. Then we raised. $12 million within that, by that time period. So I think it was by about February 2000, we'd raised $12 million from now a much broader investment pool, but it was all private investors. 
I think the largest, if I remember correctly, the largest investor invested a million dollars. So we ended up with about 40 shareholders, which was quite a lot to manage. I remember that was, was a bit of a thing to manage that many shareholders. And within the, 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 the sort of, it was, I think it was around March, April 2000, we were in the process of raising 50 million, which we did not conclude because the sort of, if you look back historically, the, the, the sort of crash happened or the, or the peak happened around March 2000. The crash actually at the time didn't feel as much of a crash because it did feel a bit more gradual. But when you look back, you can see, you can't really see that you're looking off the edge of a cliff at the time. But we were. And to be clear now, we're introing the dot-com crash that most startup founders today won't remember, don't think is a thing and didn't exist, but which shook the core of basically every tech company in the world at the time. Yes. And I remember being in India, I think it was about February 2000. I remember sitting in a taxi with one of our main shareholders and he had just gotten off the phone from someone at Merrill Lynch and they had offered to value our business. This is a business literally six months old. I think it was I think it was five hundred million dollar valuation, and he said I remember him saying uh, we think we can get to a billion dollars very soon, so we're not interested in that. So that was one moment I remember that was just pre you know, pre dot com crash, where supposedly someone was willing to value us at five hundred million dollars, where we weren't even generating a cent of revenue yet. That really is wild, but. Typical, like very typical of the time. And I mean, pets.com and all the other shining examples, boo, were doing exactly that with nothing real. And the, just as an aside, the irony of waiting 20 years, right? Pets.com now exists everywhere. Mm-hmm. The iterations of it, so much so that here in London, I use an app called Rover, where I literally open up an app and get a dog sitter to just come and sit my dogs for me. So they were just 20 years early, but all the things they were building were spot on. Mm. I mean, I think the one difference, if I think back, is that a lot of those, I mean, if you read the stories of, of like Boo.com and those ones, it sounded to me like the, the founders that were quite extravagant. They were flying first class around the world, sipping yeah. champagne. We were spending a lot of money, make no mistake about it, but we weren't being, we were quite, I felt, still quite frugal. We certainly weren't flying for, first mm-hmm. class around the world and, and throwing money away. Although I remember for, for we, were, we had planning to launch an Italian site and we had committed $1 million in advertising up front because there was this deal that we did. And we ended up not even, we had the site ready technically and translated into Italian and everything. But we ended up not launching that site, but we lost a million dollars in that advertising deal because we had committed to it, but we didn't actually launch. Yeah. Wild. Well, but at least it's not first class flights. <laughs> so I did distract you a little bit. So now you've got these three sites. You've got six months in. The valuation is... <laughs> Half a billion, according to Merrill Lynch. How many people in the company at six months? And like, how are you actually coping with this growth? Because let's be clear, three sites in three countries within six months is is insane, even today. Hey, folks, Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation. And I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. Please, right now, stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or YouTube, then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, back to the knowledge bombs. 
So yeah, we used an off-the-shelf off shelf technical solution at the time. So it allowed us to move quite quickly, at least to, to launch these sites. So obviously it, takes, it took us a bit longer to build an operational team and a sales and marketing team and all of that. I'm tr- I, I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, we would have been, I believe, less than 100 people at that stage globally in the company. I, I remember at our peak, which, which was, would have, was, was later in 2000, we, we would have been in the hundreds of people. But at that point, somewhere between 50 and 100 people, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, I was going to save the question for just now, but I think it's worth asking now. How, as a first-time founder, 23, 24, do you possibly cope with going from three staff to multiple hundreds of staff within 12 months? And I mean that literally. How did you cope and how did you hire the right kinds of people at that point? Sure. I don't know. We just did it. I mean, it, it wasn't very efficient. I got lucky. What I did was I roped in a few university friends from South Africa that actually ended up coming over, over to well, joining me in Australia in Sydney. And we hired well, a dedicated HR person. Of course, they just were hiring like crazy. And then we hired we hired country managers. So for the three main countries we were in at the time, we hired high-level country managers and they would have taken most of that load off me. I, I focused at that time mostly on the tech. So my responsibility as that young person was I was seen as sort of the, the, the tech guy and, and I was responsible for technically ensuring that these sites rolled out while we hired these other more gray heads, more senior country manager type people who focused on, on, on more on the hiring of, of the rest of the staff. But while you were the technical lead, you were also the CEO? That's a good question. Back then, it was a bit fuzzy. I Back <laughs> then, I think I was officially the head of technology. I, I became the head of technology. Okay. Obviously, when the crash happened and all the grey-head people left, then I became, I, I guess, uh, well, I called myself the MD rather than CEO at the time, yeah. That's an interesting point and observation and one that I've seen repeated quite a lot globally, but in South Africa with high growth startups, as you and I both know, the VC world in South Africa is not really a thing. So when they see high growth startups, they want to put in gray haired old experienced people to run these innovative tech startups. The most recent example I can think of is FireID and Milan Hubert, who just got completely destroyed by his investors, hiring all these old fuddy duddies who ruined his company. How, how did you, how and why, like, why would you not have just driven it yourself why get in that layer of old people mm, I, I think i was i mean so, so so the truth of it is at the time i was i didn't put in any cash right into the business ah. and so i became I, I was a 10 percent shareholder in the business so all the money that came in and then i, I got further diluted even after that so mm. i mean i was young and naive i didn't know any better and mm. i didn't have the say anyway legally because i was a minority shareholder yeah. And I mean, as a minority shareholder, were you even aware of things like, oh, I should have a seat on the board or, oh, I should have voting rights or like, did you care or were you just was, one of those eat pizza, drink monster yeah. and build this business? I think I was totally naive and I was just, I was kind of on this roller coaster ride and I was enjoying it. And I did, and I still, well, the amazing thing is those original investors to this day are still share are still the main external shareholders in the company although the the due to what's happened the 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 shareholding is different now i'm actually majority shareholder now where we ended up wow but they still supported us all through this so there is a high degree of trust i must say so i i can't actually fault they gave me this amazing opportunity i learned an enormous amount and they've actually stuck through stuck with us through thick and thin to where we are today 
which is unbelievably unusual and lucky in the world of venture or vulture capital, right? <laughs> okay, so so now we are kind of comfortably aware that what we're leading towards here is the dot-com bubble bursting. You have got Merrill Lynch offering you a half a billion dollar valuation, which you said no to. What did you say yes to after that? Well, we, we were in the, like I said, we're in the process of raising from mostly our existing shareholders an additional $50 million mm-hmm. for our expansion plans. But then due to the change in the markets and the, effectively the crash that happened, that evaporated within a short period of time. And our, our main competitor, we had one large main competitor in India. They had managed to raise a large funding round just before that. So they were sitting quite flush with cash, but their technology was falling over as they were growing. Whereas we had in the meantime, we, and this was my, more my area, we had started building a new technology platform. So while we initially launched with an off-the-shelf package just to get going, we realized that that wasn't going to be sustainable in the long term. And we had built a whole team of about 30 tech, like mostly developers. And we were building, we had just launched our new tech in India as well. So what resulted was we ended up combining those two companies in India, they largely needed us. Well, we had some traction in the market, but, but they, they, they had the cash and, and we combined those two businesses, moved on to our tech. And that was, so that was, that happened actually, this, that actually happened in 2001. And then in 2004, that business ended up getting sold to, to eBay India, actually. So, and then we talk about the crash, but like I say, at the time, it was a bit more gradual. It felt like more like a period of a year where there was this decline and things changed. And we, we ended up having to retrench most of our staff. And I ended up returning to South Africa and taking over the business there, which was more, more established than in other markets. And so it was a very gradual thing. So, so by sort of 2000 and well, I think 2002, around about there, we ended up going from employing hundreds of people around the world to just myself part-time and one other person in the company. That was it. All I can imagine is anybody who dislikes you, and Andy, I can't imagine anybody dislikes you, must have been like, see, there you go, get too cocky, fly too close to the sun, this tech thing isn't real. It must have been a bit of a kick to the gut. So I ask this question often of my guests, and it's difficult for specifically the male founders to answer it effectively, but how did you feel when when you went from 100 to two people, hundreds to two people, mm. from a half a billion valuation, how did it feel? So the most, when I think back, the, the thing I think about the, when it comes to feelings would be the moment we had to stand in front of when I was in Australia and I think we were about in the Australian office, something like 80 people, and we had to stand in front of them and tell them basically everyone was being retrenched. So we had to close down the Australian office, basically. So that was like a, like a punch to the gut. I just remember feel, feeling terrible, terrible, terrible. I thought if there was anything I could do to reverse, to change the situation, to, to give these people that they would still have a job, I felt I would do it. I would give up literally everything in my name at that time to to not have to stand there and do it. I remember we got psychologists involved. They told us, this is how you got to do it. You've got to, you can't, you got wow. to do it on a Monday, not on a Friday because people, pe- people, if people are going to have suicidal thoughts, so talking about all this, I'm just thinking, wow, imagine I could, I could be responsible for someone like wanting to kill themselves. It's just felt a very, yeah. very heavy burden. 
I remember just after that, just going into the sea and just swimming and just trying to take my mind off this. And I just swam and swam and swam for like, I think it must have been hours, just trying to get get this feeling away from me, this terrible feeling of, it was just, it was like, yeah, uh, it was just this sick to the stomach feeling having to do that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, I, I know the feeling. I don't know it at that scale, but I know that feeling well enough. Going on from that, do you feel like you're quite a high EQ CEO and founder? Like, do you feel like that experience drove your ambition further and harder to never feel that again? Or did you lock that away and go, that was an experience that happened, it shit happens, and let me just go and do it again. And if I have to retrench again, I do. It's, it's probably more, more the latter. Yeah, I... I, th- I think when when people certainly when people when you get the naysayers, well, that's happening now even right because I'm sure we'll get to what's happening now. But I I wouldn't call this what I'm going through now near near death experience like I experienced then. But I think it's similar in that you get a lot of people saying, "Yeah, I told you so," or "You're never going to succeed." And throughout my life, I found that that is more of a driver, actually, more of a positive thing for me than a negative, actually, because it makes me even more determined to 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 prove them wrong. So. I would say I'm I'm not totally afraid of having to do that again. I'm certainly more aware of what it means and what the consequences are, and I would certainly like to avoid it. I'm certainly more cautious. Definitely subscribe to the the hire slowly and fire fire fast, and rather don't hire the wrong hires and ra- rather move slower. So I think it's taught me to do that, which I think is actually good for a business, regardless whether you need to end up retrenching people or not. So yeah, I'd, I'd say it's more put me on, on, on a better foot moving forward. But I think it is unfortunately the nature of the game that we play. We have to be prepared to take these risks. And so that means that things can go wrong. And it could mean that the entire business could implode at, at some point. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I mean, look, the nature of the game for what you were doing at the time was also to not be profitable, right? It was for lots of land grabs. So jumping back to the story in 2000, when everything is slowly but really quickly crumbling, you're not profitable. Do you have a sustainable business model? Like as you're starting to realize you're retrenching people, what does the the guts of the business look like? Not good at all. So uh, investors encouraged us to to at least have a stab at we cut everything back. But they, they encouraged us. They said, well, we've got to at least try and start charging for our service. So the, the one site we could do that in was, was in South Africa. So I remember, I mean, I remember I returned to South Africa in August. So literally two years later, 2001. And I remember us running our first billing run. So I remember we had, I remember our expenses, monthly expenses, because we had cut right back the staff, but we had kept, I can't remember the number, I think it was it was probably 10 or, or less staff we had, or, or somewhere around there. And our monthly expenses were 170,000 rand a month, somewhere around there at the, at the time. And our income was zero. And then we ran, so we, so we weren't charging for our service. So we looked at the eBay model. So we thought we need to charge a listing fee at the time to, and, and you charge like a commission, a success fee as well. So we introduced that based on the eBay model. And the first month we ran it, which I think was 1st of September, 2001, the, the, the content on the site and the sales just dropped dramatically. And I remember us collecting 3,000 income that first month on an expenses of like 170,000 Rand. So that didn't look very good. I think we went from a few thousand listings on the site to, to a few hundred. Yeah, yeah. That is 
crazy. I mean, today, most businesses would look at that and go, okay, no product market fit, let's chuck out. And even the investors would be like, cool, we lost our money, high risk, high reward, so be it. What on earth made you and your team go, let's push on, there's something here. It doesn't make sense. Me and my team of one, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, ended up being one. So. You're right, sorry. So... So, uh, so slowly we had to, uh, we realized this wasn't working. So we ended up, as I say, by say 2002, being myself and one other. What, what, I, what I ended up doing, which helped, was I went and studied. I think apparently it's quite a common theme that when business is not doing well, then universities get this huge influx of, of people who, who, who go and study. So I thought, let me go and do an MBA because that wow. was the thing that everyone was speaking about. So I went and did an MBA part-time at WITS. And so I, w- I wasn't even full-time. I think, I think there might have been a period of time when I didn't even look at that site maybe for like a month, maybe. Because I was just too, wow. it was so, nothing was happening, right? Well, I actually call that period 2001 to 2004 in South Africa as the dark ages of the internet because there wasn't even ADSL then, right? ADSL only came later. So during that time, you had to pay per minute to be online if you were at home. You had to dial up, right? So it's crazy to think about that now that you have to pay telecom an amount per minute to be able to be online. So there was very little happening. I I went and studied. I, I guess I found fulfillment elsewhere in my life. But I still I still loved this concept of what we we're doing and the internet and believed in it. So things ticked along, and then I, th- I would say it was probably Google really that was maybe the and I have this love hate relationship with Google. But because internet was really not happening, there weren't a lot of, there wasn't really competition. All our competitors had basically fallen by the wayside. I remember during the dot-com boom, we probably had at least 10 formidable competitors in South Africa. Yeah. Um, but they all fell by the wayside. So what happened was as Google sort of started to gain traction because there wasn't much content on the internet, our con- the little content that we had would just feature very richly. So any search you did, I remember yeah. at the time, you could search by almost anything and if there was that keyword somewhere in one of the products we listed, we would rank right at the top. So we started getting yeah. all this sort of free organic traffic from Google. And slowly, slowly, very slowly, things started to turn around without us even having to invest in the business. So it was really, we were wow. in this maintenance mode, very little happening. I, I had other interests. I wasn't full-time focused on it. But slowly, you know, like you look at the stats. I remember I, being the geek I am, I used to look at the web access, the, the web server logs, and you'd see all this traffic coming mostly from Google and people would start buying things. Yeah. And so it was like, hang on, maybe we've got something here. That's wild. I mean, you've made, you've triggered a, a thought in my head because around this time I had just started building things and it was AW stats that was showing you what your stats were. AW stats. Yes, I remember. You just triggered that thought in my head about logging in manually to AW stats and figuring it out. And I do love the correlation you're making here between the dot-com crashing, dial-up in South Africa and Google becoming a thing was this interesting mix for bit or buy that most people probably won't observe that the dark ages of the internet for South Africa was actually the golden age for search. And if you had a website and you were smart enough to be able to make it rank, you just cashed in. Mm. Like that was it because there was no competition. There was no second Google. Google had just destroyed AltaVista, Lycos, Two Cows and all the others. So that was it. And it reminds me of something that Paul Graham says. He's got an essay called Die. And his whole theme of this essay is if you survive, you will win because everybody else will die. And I think that's it's kind of the bit or by story, right, mm-hmm. is survive through these crashes and eventually you beat your competitors. Um, so 
I want to jump a little bit back before we push forward. I'm interested in this. Your investors were telling you that maybe you're thinking too small. Maybe you need to grow faster, grow bigger. At that time, what in you at 22 building your first business went, yeah, they're right. Screw it. Let's just raise $50 million, get a billion dollar valuation, go into 12 countries in 12 months. Like it's a very unusual trait for a human, any human to have at 22 or 23 and go, yeah, I could, I could build a global company. Like, yeah, let's do that. Like, I, and maybe you've never reflected on this, but where does that come from, Andy, that you agreed with your investors and went, screw it, yeah, we can do this? I had nothing to lose, right? I didn't really have skin in the game, certainly not from a financial point of view. I was actually getting paid for me, which was like an amazing salary, right? I wasn't spending it because I was just working the whole time. And I was saving money. I had money in the bank. So the risk for me was, I felt at that age, was virtually non-existent. In fact, uh, it was a huge relief for me when they told me the one day in 2000 that we can't raise more funds and we're going to have to close down the business. Because they said that at one point, we just have to shut everything down. There was, there, was, there was no money. And I remember that just being a huge relief. I was like, great, I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to go travel. Uh, and I've, money certainly wasn't any concern for me. I had had money in the bank. And so for me, it just uh, it felt like a no-brainer. I just just go along, along, along with the ride. I had nothing to lose. And it wasn't, I didn't really think about it at the time, I suppose. I just, I just went with it. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a very fair point, right? This context is part of the world that like the dot-com is a thing and the internet is a thing and booze raising millions. So why don't we? And like, you just sort of get along to go along. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. So now putting yourself in the end of 2001, search starts to work and you're looking at stats, you finished your MBA and do you start thinking, okay, if search is working, we need to create more content or like what's the next move once you see the little bit of traction that you have, because obviously your expenses are now basically zero, server costs and your salary. Mm. And then what happens to revive this business? Because I'd say pulling a business out of death grip is almost harder than starting one from scratch. Mm. So, so what I did, you talk about your know, expenses were, were virtually zero, you could argue, because what I'd also done was I'd negotiated at the time with the shareholders to basically not take a salary. I, th I think I might have taken a, a salary, but not more than 5,000 rand a month. And I'd negotiated with them in exchange for that to, to increase my shareholding in the company. So we did a deal to make that happen. And I, so I was. Can I pause on that? I, I want to pause on that because that's a really interesting thing that maybe as founders we think is just so obvious. Like, yeah, of course, if you're not going to pay me, I'll take more equity. I back myself, then I get upside down the line. But at the time, you're pretty young and inexperienced in this world. Was that a, a, an actual negotiation leverage you were pulling? Or did you just think, well, there's nothing of value here? The only thing I can get is equity. So let me bargain for that. I think in my mind, I did see it as a negotiation, a point of negotiation. I felt I wanted to have a bigger, bigger stake in the company if I was going to be spending my time on this moving forward. That's how I remember it. But at the same time, yeah, when I look back, actually, I think at the time I maybe didn't feel that way. But when I look back, we were in probably a far more precarious position than I realized at the time. I think hmm. I think I was still riding a little bit on the coattails of of the dot com boom like thinking that we really have something of value here when I think in reality we, we probably didn't at, the, at that time. <laughs> wow, yeah, really interesting. And so I think that's an, an interesting jump to what you were going to get into is now you don't really know if you have something of value. You think you might. you got more equity. And then how do you start rebuilding? So what's happened, I'm trying to think. So, 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 so the business was growing organically then. 
So if I remember correctly, we were, because we, we hadn't raised more funds or anything. So we were kind of bootstrapping, I imagine you would call it now, and just growing gradually. And so I remember hiring a few more staff and just organically growing the business, but off an extremely low base, right? So so it would have been tens of thousands of rands a month sort of expenses and income. And we would have got to a point where we were basically profitable, but on a very small scale. And that was kind of in that mode, I think, until 2007, which was hmm. when I was approached by a large New York-based hedge fund called Tiger Global. And they had just done a deal with NASPAS, where they'd bought at the time, I think it was mailed at RU, but they were in South Africa to close off that deal. And as an aside, I think they decided to to have a look at other local possible investments and had a meeting with Lee Fixel, who's one of the partners there. And I remember following that, literally, it was that one meeting in person and then a phone call after that, they agreed to invest. If I remember correctly, it was $3 million into the business. And then what I did was I sold, I think my shareholding was up to 16%. And I sold 8% of that. So half of my shareholding I sold as part of that deal. So they put money in the business, but also allowed the secondary sale of shares. And I think that was my first sort of real exit, like exit of a, where I got cash out. And I bought a house and I think that was about it. And I ended up with cash and that, that gave me the conviction or the to, to, to invest. That's when Payfast started, basically. So it gave me confidence to say, okay, well, um, I actually remember saying to our shareholders, I think we should do a PayPal type business within Biddlebuy. And because it was still quite negative, the sentiment, and they said, well, payments is very complicated and there's regulatory issues and all of that. They weren't that keen. So that left the door open for me to to start PayFast with Jonathan Smith. And I put in the initial funding for that and it came from that first sale. So I think, I think for me, the lesson there was, I think I, I had bought a, a house in, in, in Morningside in Santon. And I had a lo- I had debt, so I had a loan, so I could immediately pay off the loan. And for me, that was super liberating. Like, so now I've never looked back then, never gone into debt, and I never, ever want to go into debt again, because just having that for me was, just made me feel like I, I could take risks and take chances, and it doesn't matter what happens. So I think as soon as you go into debt, in my opinion, I think it limits your, what you can do as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I agree. Philosophically, it's that abundance versus scarcity approach to things that if you don't have debt, everything you're thinking in abundance, if you have debt behind you as an individual, and you might literally lose your house, if this doesn't work out, it's very hard to be proactive and abundant when you're approaching a new business or a startup or investors or clients or whatever. So I fully agree with that. And it's interesting how many of my guests have echoed your sentiment that it just takes one exit to buoy up your ego as well as your bank balance so that you feel like you can then let rip and there's no real concern. Vinny Lingham is another good example. After one great exit, he leverages that exit into many, many, many other investments and startups. And I think it's a mistake that young founders make is they try and act like an exited founder before they have an exit. And you're another great example of grind until you get that exit and then you can liberate yourself from debt and financing and all the other things. So yeah, I appreciate that story. I want to jump back to this Tiger meeting. I mean, it's hilarious to me that basically a year and a half after the crash, you had two meetings and they gave you $3 million. Yeah. I mean, for them, it was small change. I think they almost wouldn't do the deal because it was too small for them. But we we were their first African investment. And I think I think wow. the, the personal sort of rapport that is created between us was good because 
I then went on actually, and I remember Lee saying he wanted to, I think he said he wanted to commission McKinsey to do a, some consultancy work or some kind of a report to to look at opportunities in Africa. And I was like, well, okay, that's great, but can I maybe just have a stab at it myself first? And and so I, I put a report together, and out of that, I actually ended up co-investing with them in their second investment, which was private property in South Africa, and yeah. then which became One Africa Media, and we went sort of pan-African, and then also got the opportunity to co-invest with them in, in what, what is now Take-A-Lot, actually. So that was just, I guess, one door opened, led to another, and... Into this, a whole hallway. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I got to, I got ex, got a lot of exposure to that sort of. Yeah, and got invited to go to New York. It was, it was also a bit of crazy. It was almost like a second dot com boom in a way. Just before, mm. I mean, it is actually crazy when you think because there was the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, right? And it was yeah. It was almost a little bit. There was still this second, like almost second internet boom happening. It was a little bit oblivious to that from my perspective, at least, because because everything still kept on going. I remember going to New York every year for this like conference we had, and it was no expense spared, and still a lot of investment taking place uh, in, in the space. And yeah, it's it sort of it, it, it we were sort of a little bit oblivious to to what was going on in the rest of the world. I think from that point of view, but. But I think that that's an, an interesting observation, Andy, because around 2009, I was starting to raise a fair amount of funding for one of my startups, and we were doing it in London, in Germany, in New York, in Texas, and businesses were suffering, but we were oblivious to it because we were in tech. So the, the big crash of 2008 wasn't that relevant, and I think the observation I'd like to make, and I, I'm curious how you feel about this, is there is really never a shortage of money. There's generally a shortage of good founders meeting good investors. But the money is always present. If you have a good idea, it's profitable, has traction, and you're a good founder. Yeah, I think I'd agree, I'd agree with that. I mean, even now we're going through this uh, downturn in the tech sector. But even, so even right now, you can raise, certainly there's there's funding available for the right opportunities to be raised. So yeah, absolutely, mm. I'd agree with that. Maybe not on exactly the same terms as you might've got during the frothy years, but definitely still still possible. Yeah, that's a key point. And I would argue that those, uh, like how you phrase that, the frothy years were actually more damaging than good because you are raising at crazy valuations. And we're seeing it now with all of the tech stocks being knocked down to what actually their valuations probably should have been for the last four years anyways. Exactly. So I'm all for that. So I want to, since we're talking about this, is there anything happening today that makes you feel like reminiscent of 2000 where it was that one year of crash? Like, are we in that or is this not actually as bad as that? I don't think it's the same because, well, predominantly I'd say because we're not, or certainly in our case, and I think in most people's cases, they're not doing the land grab thing, right? Build it and they'll come sort of scenario Mm. that we are thinking about, is it a viable business? Does it make sense financially? Are we able to generate income? So certainly from my perspective, it doesn't feel the same. Yeah. It feels There's more business basics attached to it. Yeah. I'm interested in this tiger thing. I just last question on them. Before they gave you that three million dollars, how much of the twelve million that you had raised was left? Nothing. Yeah. So. So in those first two or three years, you cleaned through that twelve bar like chop chop, even though you had shrunk down and moved specifically to South Africa and focused on that one business. Yes, I, I can't remember the exact dates, but I'm pretty sure by. Literally by 2002, end of 2001, there would have been none of that cash left at all. It was we were on our own. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't want to poke into that, but specifically the thing that's amazing to me is $12 million is, was your like post seed round, mm. <laughs> but in South Africa, can you name me more than two businesses that have raised $12 million basically ever? Like Yoko is the most recent one that's raised over $80 million, but yeah. not many. Not... And in South Africa, that money goes a long way. It does. Yeah. Um, I think there's there, there must be some. I don't know off the top of my head, and I'm sure there will be more going forward. But yeah, sure. It was. Yeah. I mean, but obviously we were going to we're, we're going global though. So I mean, it was yes. South America, it was Europe, it was Australasia, even uh, Israel. It's in relation, but, not a lot of money. Yes, not a lot of money yes. for those markets. Sure, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then before we move on to a couple of more personable questions, something that I've experienced that I really struggle with and I hope to never do again that you mentioned that made me shudder inside is that you raised the 12 million from 40 shareholders. Tell me about running a company and managing 40 shareholders. That on its own is a full-time job, never mind running a company. And you were doing the tech stack at the time. So you're the CEO, you're the head of tech, and you're the the shareholder's number one point of call. How did that work? Because that's hard. It it just ended up being an admin nightmare, I guess, where anytime you had to do anything that required shareholder approval or or documentation, whatever the case was, you're just spending your life emailing and following up from people, phoning them, trying to get a response. So, mm. yeah, my advice would be to always definitely try to keep it as lean as possible from that point of view. Uh, one thing you can do is, is try, which our shareholders did subsequently, was sort of roll up a number of shareholders into one entity. But obviously, there's various tax complications and things to also you have to yeah. take into account. But it's much easier yeah. to deal with like one representative through an entity than many shareholders. That, that would be ideal. But it definitely slows you down and it's, it's, it's not ideal at all to have have lots of shareholders, especially in foreign shareholders yeah. as well. It makes it even worse. Oof. Yeah, and especially back then where digital signing wasn't really mm. a thing. It was significantly more complex to get 40 signatures on a single document mm. from 40 different people in multiple countries. I, I, I've I, done that and I hope to never do it again. Okay, so now for the last few questions before we move on to what is coming, I'm interested in the personal side of this because you are a relatively um, inward-facing guy. You're not the most public CEO in the world. You don't talk about yourself very much. It's all about your team and your business and how amazing they are. So I want to know about the stress and the trauma of building this business that you've had now for 22 odd years. When you go from half a billion to zero, how does your mental health get affected? And at this time, do you have partners and family and what are they doing and saying to you? Like, how do you get up in the morning when you've lost that much value overnight? Overnight. So you say you want to know my personal individual feelings, which I, I'll try and give to you. I am an introvert, so it, it, it is an effort, but I'll, I'll do my best. But I am going to revert more to it, it, it was the people I had around me that helped me get through that. So so in the early days, there was a New Zealand guy called John Clegg, actually. he We were the, the team, sort of, we even shared an apartment. We shared a car. People used to joke that we were married because we just we used to do everything together and we and we used to argue like a couple as well. Although mm-hmm. living in Sydney, yeah, anyways, it was it was it was it was a bit of a standing joke. But so we complemented each other. So it was the old age thing of we had different strengths. And I think during the down times, it really was as cliched as it is. We would when one of us was down, generally the other one would pull the other one through it. So it was that. The family, my brother actually was 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 key in all this as well. So he was in London. He actually put in, he was one of the 40 shareholders that actually put in cash. I didn't personally put in, but my brother put in cash. Wow. And his 
his wife also and his his one of his 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 closest friends also put in cash. So I'd actually say that wow. that made it worse because all the other shareholders yeah. were not, were not I didn't have that personal relation with them as I did with my brother. So that probably had the biggest impact on me knowing that because that they put in at at the at the peak. So 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 they they lost basically lost their money. It was gone. So, so that did weigh on me, but the fact that they were so supportive, they'd lost money, but they were like, we understood the risks, we knew it was high risk. Don't mm. know, they in, they actually wow. in banking, so, 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 so they were like, oh, this is crazy, but you know, we want to back you, so they put in, they put in the money, but they, they knew the risks uh, at the time. I was naive, like I said, so I thought we were going to the moon. There was, there was only one way, but I think they were mm. more realistic, so they, they, they knew that they knew what they were doing. So, so, but so their support is what got me through. I mean, I, I was a late, I only got married after all of this in life. So I didn't have like a life partner really. And so, but, but again, I think I, my mentality was more like if everything has to close tomorrow, it's actually not the end of the world. I had such, for me, even though at the time we weren't successful, I found it extremely fulfilling personally. So I just felt mm-hmm. that I could move on to the next thing and do something and I'd be better equipped to do that. So I don't think, I just think by personality, I didn't allow it to, to get to me. I would say going through the retrenchment process and all of that, that was far more taxing on me personally, emotionally, mm. like, like feeling like you've let down all these people. And, and so on the shareholding side, that would be more with, with, my, with the people I knew that I felt like I'd let them down. That, that would tug at me. But as a business, for some reason, I actually was pretty fearless from that point of view, I think. I'd, I actually, in some ways, I think I was, uh, for a long time, I was hoping that it, it would, we would just close this down and I could move on because I felt like mm. it was time to move on. But for some reason, it just didn't want to go away. It just, it just stayed there and then, and then started coming back sort of almost on its own and then couldn't ignore it. Yeah, I think you were one of the very few people that I could probably ask this question and have an, an interesting conversation around it because you chose not to shut down Bidubai, not to walk away, not to listen to probably everybody and their sister telling you that the internet is not a thing, this business isn't going to work, there's no money here, you've lost 12 million, you had a billion dollar business, now you don't walk away. My question is, and I get this question all the time from the people I've invested in, the people I coach and the people I mentor. When do you walk away? Sure, that's a very, I guess, a very personal thing. I, I would, I would, I would, in some ways, would argue. I probably, I mean, so we don't know. Life is, you got all these different choices, and you, you end up going a certain path. So what I don't know is what would have happened if, if I would have walked away earlier. Let's say in two thousand and one, mm. I'd walked away. Maybe I would have started something else, and maybe, maybe that would have crashed, or maybe that could have become something even bigger. I, I can't tell you that, right? So mm. I often think. Maybe I should have. I should have. I, I hung on for too long. I, I, it's, I think it's quite conceivable to say it because even now, if, where I find myself now is we still. I've still got a lot to prove, right? We, we, we as Bidobi in South Africa, you've got we've got uh, Take a Lot that's dominating the online marketplace uh, model in South Africa. We've got Amazon coming, Walmart uh, coming even stronger. So. I didn't even know, I can't tell you now that that those were the right decisions and what would have happened if I would have walked, walked away earlier. So mm. I, I think, I, I actually think, I think I think I should have walked away actually in 2001 in retrospect. I think, I mean, we dragged on for years and years and yes, I have, I've had some positive outcomes since then, 
but maybe the the the, the opportunity cost was was possibly greater for, for something else. Wow. I hugely appreciate the honesty in that answer, Andy. Thank you. That I think that a lot of people listening will then look at their own businesses and think it's okay to walk away. I mean, if somebody who's been through the toils of a 22-year business that you have probably thinks he should have walked away earlier, maybe if you're listening to this, you should be a bit more aggressive with your decisions. Andy, this is usually the part in the show where I say to my guests that for you and Bid or Buy, it's not over. And for you and Bid or Buy, it actually is not over because you have something really cool that you announced this week, which is partly why we have you on the show. So I want to hand over to you to tell us a little bit about what's happening in the world of Bid or Buy and your world. So the floor is yours. Go ahead. Thank you. So in 2010, I left Bid or Buy. I went uh, travels when I met my wife, my now wife. We went traveling around the world and I took a break. I remained on as a non-executive director, so I have been involved with the business ever since, but not on an operational level. level. Then around 2012, when I, I was back in South Africa and started uafrica.com, which is focused on the logistics side of e-commerce. And so this last week, what we announced, which I'm very proud of, and it's full circle for me, is we've merged uafrica together with Bidobai to form a new entity called Bob Group. And Bob Group is going to focus on everything e-commerce is our tagline, and that's the online marketplace. So we're going to rebrand Bidobai as Bob Shop, which is a big internal, another topic for another debate. Wow. <laughs> so that's the end of the Bidobai brand? Yes, it will be next year, wow. early next year. Wow. And I, I sold out of my shareholding in Payfast in 2019, and I still feel there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of changes happening in the payment space. So we've also launched our own online payment service called Bob Pay, and U Africa Shipping early next year. We're going to rebrand that as Bob Go. So that's our aggregator shipping solution, and then we've got some other services that we are looking at launching as well under sort of the, the Bob name. So that is yeah, that is the news, and that's the full circle for me is to offer this all-encompassing e-commerce offering. And obviously, I find myself in a similar situation again now where we announced this and people say, are you crazy? Take a lot dominates this market. We all know that one of the worst kept secrets is Amazon is launching early next year. Their marketplace, Walmart have announced their intention to acquire 100% of MassMart. And we know what's happened elsewhere in the world. They're going to put a major focus on e-commerce. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit of the David and Goliath, I guess, to some extent. And it's kind of the position I like being in. But certainly very challenging and remains to be seen whether we can, where this is it's certainly not over, but but yet to be determined what, ha- what happens, whether we're going to have another near death or complete death experience that remains to be seen. Andy, I have no doubt that you're not going to be on this show again about a death experience with the Bob group. My, my grandfather used to say, and I, I say this in reference to Amazon and Walmart entering a country they don't really know very well. You can buy bread and you can buy cheese, but you can't buy experience. <laughs> And I believe that for you and the Bob Group, that is absolutely the key metric here. This space better than anyone because you built it. So before you go, please tell people where they can actually find all of these new things. Give us a URL. I'll include it in the show notes. And if they want to get in touch with you, if you're open to that, where can they follow you on socials? Let them know. So the URL is quite easy. It's just bob.ca.za and you'll be able to, that will lead you to everything from there. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or the usual social media. Yeah, I'd love to hear from people, we, especially yeah, anyone in the e-commerce space or, or can work with us. We would love to make a, a local success in this space. But we, yeah, we've got our work cut out, that's for sure. It's all, all about execution, right? Nick, you, you know all about that. 
It is absolutely about execution. And Andy, now I am happy to say that for you and the Bob group, it's not over. Thank you very much.